So how many of you can name this great historical figure on the screen before you? Any guesses? John Wesley. That was less than fully confident, but that is a good answer in a Methodist church. That is John Wesley, our founder. It's one, one depiction of him. Uh, and so for the next five weeks, including today, we're going to be uh, embracing a series called Warm Hearts and Wide Tables. What are some of the things that make us United Methodists? What are some of the quirky things that are in our family tree? Now, the first thing I want to say to you is that we are Christians first and United Methodists second. That's a really important distinction to make. This just happens to be the one expression of church that we're living in now. This is our faith community. And I think we need to claim it and we need to celebrate it, but we need to know that we're Christians first. Christians first, United Methodist second. So we're going to look at a couple of things. Today we're going to look at uh, warm hearts and cool heads, but next week Reverend Nicole is going to be preaching about amazing grace and sort of perfect. You know, what is the understanding of being Methodist is so grounded in grace at every turn, and also the understanding of sanctification. That's sort of a Wesleyan kind of thing. Reverend Byron is going to preach on potluck dinners and God talk, the ways that we view community and what's our theology of community, not just how do we do it, but why why do we do the things that we do in community. Uh, On April 24th, I'll come back and preach about uh, muddy boots and sore backs. How, how do we have a faith that engages us in real service to our neighbors? And how has that been the case since the very beginning of the Methodist movement? And then the last Sunday of the series, we're going to look at uh, a wide table and a big tent. We practice a wide table. We always remind you that this is an open table to everybody. And that's not true in every Christian communion. Um, and also a wide tent because we are a bit diverse as a church. That can be messy at times as United Methodists. We have people across all kinds of spectrums that are part of the Methodist church. And so we have a big tent kind of church. So today we're going to talk about these warm hearts and these cool heads. And uh, how many of you remember the comedian Jeff Foxworthy? Not as notable today, but he was pretty big for a while. Yes? That name means something. Means something. And what did he make his mark doing? I mean, what was his shtick for so long? For years and years and years? You might be a redneck if. Okay, and so he had version one, volume two, volume three, volume four. He had like, he parlayed it into a TV show for a while. You know, it was, it was a big thing. So back in 1998, in the, in the height of the Jeff Foxworthy craze, there's a little book that came out that says, you might be a United Methodist if. So I'm going to share some of these with you today uh, and see if you agree or see yourselves or see us in the light of these things. You might be a United Methodist if you know that a circuit rider is not an electrical device. (laughs) Circuit riders were the early uh, preachers that rode on horseback uh, as the Methodist movement spread around our country. You might be a United Methodist if you realize the Book of Discipline is not a guide to getting your child to behave. So it's it's the way we order our lives as a United Methodist. You might be a United Methodist if you've ever owned a pair of cross and flame boxer shorts. That probably a, I do not, just to, for the record, to set the record straight. You might be a United Methodist if you know that the Wesleyan quadrilateral isn't a trick football play involving four lateral passes. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. But I think it's one of the things that makes us distinctive. You might be a United Methodist if um, there's at least one person in every church meeting who says, but we've never done it that way before. Oh, there's a knowing laugh that just went up there. You might be a United Methodist if your congregation's Christmas pageant includes both boy and girl wise men. 
We tend to be a very inclusive church, a very gender-inclusive church. We have female clergy. We have, you know, they think that men and women should have equal roles in the church. You might be a United Methodist if, uh, let me see if I've got this, this one right, if you realize that potluck doesn't refer to a random method of toilet training. <laughs> potluck, it has a different meaning. For some people, it's a sacrament in the Methodist church. We have the, you know, they've sort of gone by the wayside. We don't have as many as we used to have. You might be an United Methodist if you've ever used the word inclusive in a normal conversation. Inclusive. We talk about ourselves as being an inclusive church, and that's important vocabulary and language within the United Methodist family. You might be a United Methodist, this, this will be true, I bet, if coffee hour is your favorite part of Sunday morning. And local expressions might include like donut shack as be part of that sacramental experience of Sundays. You might be a United Methodist if when the worship service lasts for more than one hour, now fess up if this is true, the beeping of watch alarms drowns out the final hymn. <laughs> and then finally today, you might be a United Methodist if you don't take a Rolaids when your heart is strangely warmed. You don't take a Rolaids when your heart is strangely warmed. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. We get there by way of the road to Emmaus. This is one of those great post-Easter texts that we have in the season of Easter. Uh, this this is, happens on Easter Day. It's the evening of Easter Day. And two of the disciples are walking on this road to Emmaus, and a stranger joins them for the conversation, and he says, what were you talking about? And they say, how could you not have heard? How could you have not heard the big news that's been dominating our lives and been dominating the whole city? Did you not hear about Jesus, this prophet, this one from Galilee, and how he was taken, he was crucified, how the authorities uh, killed him? And we had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one sent from God. Have you not heard? And then suddenly this stranger starts to engage them in a different way and open up the scriptures to him. It says, starting with the stories of Moses and working all the way through scripture and interpreting these stories for them. And they get to a point where they reach their destination and they say, come, why don't you eat with us? It's getting to the evening hour for a meal. Why don't you stay with us and eat? And it's in that moment where this stranger now becomes familiar because this stranger takes a loaf of bread and breaks it, gives it to them. And it says at that moment they see this is no stranger at all. This is the risen Christ in their midst. And as soon as they recognize him, here's the part of the mystery, he vanishes. He's no longer there with them. And then they say to each other, did not our hearts burn on the road as he opened up the scriptures to us? Did not our hearts burn? Did we not feel the presence of God right there with us? Was this not a powerful experience of God in our midst, of Jesus in our midst. As United Methodists, we, uh, we claim that personal connection and that personal experience to God, but it's, it's not, nothing we invented. It's certainly been going on for generation upon generation, thousands of years, all recorded these stories in the Bible where people have these encounters with God, and certainly like this one here on the Emmaus Road. Did not our hearts burn? John Wesley was a United was not a United Methodist pastor. He was an Anglican pastor. He had been raised as a PK, one of 19 children. 
His dad was a preacher in the Anglican Church, and he and his brother went on to Oxford, uh, studied there, did well there. He became an ordained Anglican priest, and he started to form these little groups of Christians to get together to study the Bible and to hold each other accountable as they would walk this way of faith. And he came to the United States, uh, in the fledgling United States, they weren't still colonies sort of back then, came to Georgia with General Oglethorpe on a missionary journey that was not very successful. Uh, As a matter of fact, probably one of the most memorable things, he came thinking he was going to convert the Native Americans. That was his goal. He was going to be a missionary to the Native Americans. Not real good at that. Didn't really have much success. No big statistics to come back. He did come back with a broken heart. He fell in love with a woman by the name of Sophie Hopke, who was part of the, the little parish there, and she did not really share his feelings. And so being a hurt Anglican clergyman, he wouldn't let her come to communion. That didn't sit well with her dad, who was kind of an important guy. He sort of got run out of town, actually, because of this broken heart. That's a little bit, a little known part of our past. And, but another important thing was going on to him. He was sort of going through this time of uh, deepening and challenging and rethinking his own faith. And he takes the ship back to England, and he encounters these Moravians who are on the ship with him. And in the middle of a storm, they have this great peace. They're singing hymns. He's scared to death. And they're just sitting there singing hymns. And he says, I want what they have. I want, they have this assurance of God's presence that I am lacking. I want that. And he starts to pray for that. He starts to look for that. So he gets back to England. He and his brother uh, Charles, the great hymn writer, uh, together in a span of a couple weeks have these amazing conversion experiences, if you will. First, Charles on Pentecost Sunday that year. And then less than two weeks later, John Wesley is at one of the societies at the gathering on Aldersgate Road, May 24th, 1738, And he writes this in his journal. I was listening to the preface to the book of Romans by Martin Luther. So Luther's preface to the Romans. And he said, and in that time, in that listening, in that, I'd heard this story before, right? I've heard this many times. I've preached this before. But in that moment, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust God. I trusted God in a deep and in a personal way. It was a real turning point for Wesley, and and from that moment on, personal experience would be one of the defining characteristics of the movement. It wasn't just about getting together and doing these certain things, praying and worshiping and studying scripture. It was about this personal encounter with God. And so since the beginning of our movement, of our time as a church, this idea that we are called in a personal relationship with God has been central. Um, I don't know for, for you when that has happened along the way. Maybe you can point back to a particular time and place where God's presence became real to you for the first time or for the fifth time or the tenth time. I remember as a teenager being on a retreat, like the women are on retreat this weekend. I was ret- on retreat. I was 13 years old. I had listened to the speaker all weekend. I'd been singing songs. I had been gathered with my youth group. And I remember on that Sunday afternoon sitting down, we were writing a letter to God. And I felt my heart strangely warmed. Like this was not just my parents' faith anymore. This was my faith. This was not just some Jesus who was out there. This was a Jesus who was right beside me, a Jesus who was present to me. And that was one of what would become a lifelong series of moments like that, of feeling God's presence in my life. And you probably have those kind of moments too, 
moment when God was really close, as close as Jesus was to those disciples on that road. I felt my heart strangely warm. If you go to Aldersgate Road, you can go to this place where there's this uh, sculpture, sort of a modern-looking sculpture, with Wesley's journal entry. Uh, that's what's written and inscribed there. This is his moment of conversion, his moment of heartwarming. But you know, I'm glad to be a part of a tradition that honors not only that side of faith, this passionate, emotional, uh, engaged side of faith, but also honors this thinking, rational side of our faith. I get a magazine, comes to me every two weeks, and it's one of my favorite publications, one of the few things that I read. I get lots of stuff, but this is one I read almost cover to cover. Almost every single issue without fail. I've got to be really busy to not do that. It's called The Christian Century. Early in my ministry, it, it wasn't that good, I have to be honest. I, I subscribed to it for a while. I stopped subscribing. This didn't do much for me. But in the last 15 years, I find that this resource uh, just connects deeply with me in my own spiritual journey for lots of reasons, partly because it has a global perspective. What's happening in the world? What are real events going on out there? And how does the gospel impact that? How, what, is, what do we as Christians have to say to that? And how do we engage that? And what's happening in the church in the, in the broader world, not just here in Severna Park? And so I find myself reading this almost cover to cover. And what I love about it is their little tagline that's underneath, that you can't see it on the slide real well, but it says, here's what they're about. Thinking critically and living faithfully. Thinking critically and living faithfully. I am so glad to be a United Methodist because that could be our tagline too. That we're about thinking critically, engaging our minds as well as our hearts, and living faithfully as a result of that. Norman Cousins is an American journalist, and he says, My faith nourishes my reason, and my reason, my faith. My faith nourishes my reason, and my reason, my faith. Wesley could have said that. Wesley would describe himself as a man of one book. He was, and what he meant by that was he was a man of the Bible, first and foremost. But he was never really a man of one book. He was a man of many books. He studied at Oxford, as I said. He read voraciously. He wrote in all kinds of disciplines beyond theology and beyond Bible studies and things like that. He wrote medical uh, treatises. They were a little wacky if you look at them, but he had such a broad interest in the world because he thought that God had given him a way of engaging the whole world and not just a narrow sector of it. Within the United Methodist tradition, we've sort of honored that that a seed that was planted in Wesley. And over the years, we've come to call it that Wesleyan quadrilateral. Scripture first, yes, that's our grounding point. But scripture read through the eyes of reason, through the eyes of experience, and through the eyes of tradition. And all of those things inform and shape the way that we read and interpret the Bible and the way that we live our Christian faith. It's not the Bible only, but it's the Bible in light of our minds, our experience, our common experience, as well as our individual experience, and then also the traditions. Now, you can even buy a Wesley Methodist quadrilateral game. Did you know that? I do not own one of these, but now I know I can own one. I just found it out this week. Or you can buy this t-shirt. I might buy this t-shirt. This t-shirt has sort of the Bible at the center there, but it also has experience and tradition and reason around that. Scripture, tradition, reason, experience. I want to be part of a of a church that allows me to think. I want to be part of a church that doesn't tell me that when I walk in the church doors, I have to check my brain at the door. I want to be part of a church that doesn't tell me I have to choose science or religion. These battles that we've sometimes set up. The sad part is, if you go and you look at faith and reason, 
um, if you just Google that phrase, the first things that are going to come up in general are faith versus reason things. Faith instead of reason things. Now, ultimately, I think faith has to trump reason. But I want a faith that, in the words of Anselm, the great thinker of the 10th century, said, I want a faith that is seeking understanding, that engages my heart, but then also engages my head and engages my whole self. I love this quote I came across this week. Faith and reason are the shoes on your feet. You can travel further with both than you can with just one. You can travel further when we know that they're not enemies of each other, when they are partners in our way of becoming and living in the world. One of John Wesley's most famous sermons was on Catholic spirit. And Catholic was not Roman Catholic. Catholic was in Catholic as in the, the creed. We believe in one Catholic universal church. Catholic is in a church that's bigger than just this little splinter of the church. And he was talking about this in, in light of the ways that different Christians think different things about theology and issues. And so the Calvinists might think this and the Catholics think this and the Methodists think this. And even within any of those particular branches of the church, we don't always agree on things. This is where he says the limits of reason come into play. He says we're not going to understand fully all of these mysteries and we're not even going to agree on everything when we use our minds to consider these things. Even when we come at the Bible, we may come to some different conclusions. We have to allow for that. He says, though we cannot all think alike, can we not all love alike? That's his conclusion. Though we cannot all think alike, sometimes we're going to come to different places. Can we agree to disagree at times and still love each other through difference? That's one of the things we say that we can do as United Methodists. And I'm glad that we can do that. And today, when you come to this table, I want you to bring your whole selves. I want you to bring your warm heart, your experience of the risen Christ with you. And maybe you will experience Christ at this table like those disciples did. It was when he broke the bread that they said, aha, he's here with us. But I also want you to bring your mind. And I want you to bring your whole self to this table. This is a big table, big enough for our questions and our doubts, as well as our affirmations and our faith. All of it together. Warm hearts, cool heads, whole selves as we come before God. That's how I want to journey as a United Methodist. And you know what? That's part of who we are. That's part of our story. That's part of why I've chosen this is the place I want to live out my faith. Amen. As we move to a time of offering, I would invite you into this responsive prayer. Like the disciples at Emmaus, we offer what we have. They offered their company, their table, their bread. We invite you to be with us, Jesus. As we offer you our love, our devotion, and these gifts, may our eyes be open to your holy presence among us, now and always. Amen. Let us offer God our gifts.